A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. The number one source of coronavirus outbreaks in Canada is, of course, long-term care homes. So what's number two? Let me give you a hint. It's not schools. It's not your backyard winter Christmas visits. It's not even a charter plane to the Caribbean filled with Canadian politicians. It's factories, warehouses, processing plants. It's workplaces. And not just the essential workplaces you might have in mind. We're talking about Amazon fulfillment centers and skincare manufacturers. Work in spaces like that has carried on uninterrupted. And if you're thinking that they've all adapted with rigorous new safety and hygiene protocols, well, as you're gonna hear today, even to the limited extent to which workplaces are supposed to have done that, there's essentially zero oversight to make sure that employers have actually done anything at all to keep workers safe and essentially zero consequences for those employers who have ignored the rules completely. Listen, if the shameful crisis in long-term care has anything at all to do with how we in the media have long neglected nursing homes and other facilities, well, wait until you hear about labor. At some blurry point in the last 30 years or so, the press basically stopped covering labor it used to be a defining beat of the popular press. Whole sections of newspapers or whole newspapers were dedicated to what happens at work. Well, my guest today might be one of the last, I don't know, maybe even the last dedicated full-time labor reporter at a major Canadian newspaper. 
You will also hear on today's show the voices of workers themselves at affected workplaces. Altered voices so that they can keep their jobs. But we asked people to reach out to us if they don't feel safe at work or if they have anything about their workplaces that they think should be known. You will not hear their names, but you will hear their words. And you'll hear my conversation with a Toronto Star's labor reporter, Sara Mojtahedzadeh. She has been following essential workers since before we called them that. Before COVID, Sara went undercover as a temp at Fiera Foods, where another temp worker died. That was a year-long project. Sara hosted the podcast Hustled, about the gig economy, about the push towards unionization at Fudora, who eventually fled the country to avoid unionization. And these days, Sara is revealing COVID outbreaks that companies were hoping you would not hear about. Well, you are going to hear about them in a minute. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Jonathan Bates, Julianne Rohel, Megan Bonenfant, Laurie McCauley-Littlejohn, Hillary Lawson, Wendy Bumstead, Matthew Verrett, and Mohamed Osama. Hey, I'm Mohamed Osama, a software engineer from Toronto. I support Canada Land because I believe that a diverse news media landscape based on advertising is unsustainable, and I appreciate that Canada Land's shows give a platform to marginalized voices and bring my attention to issues that would have otherwise escaped it. Things could be better. Uh, I'm a little disappointed in the way my employer has handled their response to the pandemic and to the lockdown. So at the beginning of the pandemic, when things started to shut down, there was a lot of resistance for closing the stores. There was a bit of a public outcry as to uh, the company's response. You know, people wanted the company to lead by example and to protect the workers as best they could. And their response was that there's no need to worry. Uh, like we are, we are, we have no plans to close at this time. We have no plans to um, add extra protections for our workers. But if they don't feel safe, they have the option of taking a layoff. Well, under the current circumstances, there is a lockdown, so the public is not in our store. But um, before that, myself and most of my other co-workers as well uh, did not really feel safe because we were letting customers into our stores who didn't have masks and they could claim a medical condition and we wouldn't be able to uh, to do anything about it. But there were some customers who got belligerent and the company's response was, well, uh, they want to shop here, so we're going to let them. So what we're going to do when these people come to the store is we'll just we'll just clear an entire area of the store and anybody who doesn't feel comfortable being there can uh, go to another area of the store until they leave. It didn't feel like they were taking our concerns very seriously. I know you've looked at labor during COVID through a number of different lenses and at a number of different workplaces, but just to try to go kind of big picture here, Sara, what is the top level information? I mean, I know that after long-term care, workplaces are, are the top place where COVID is spread. 
can you share some specific instances of breakouts and give me give me that big picture through some of those specifics that you found? Yeah, I mean, we know um, both at the national and provincial level that workplaces, particularly um, industrial settings, are a major source of COVID-19 transmission, one of the most important sources of COVID-19 transmission. We see that in, for example, the massive cargo outbreak in Alberta, which was one of the largest in the entire continent. We see it in the huge outbreaks across Canada on agricultural operations. And here in Toronto, we see it in food processing, um, industrial bakeries, most recently in Toronto, a skincare manufacturer. So we're seeing it across numerous industries, but I think that there are some sort of common underlying themes in these workplaces, whether it be in Ontario or the rest of the country. And I think that theme really is precarious work. What level of breakouts are we talking about here? What are the numbers at some of these specific workplaces? Cargill, if I recall, was close to a thousand workers testing positive here in Toronto. Some of the biggest outbreaks that we've seen have been in sort of the 180 workers testing positive range. Some of the farms that we've seen saw hundreds of migrant workers test positive in a, in a single location. More than 1,500 uh, migrant workers total in Ontario that we know of who tested positive for COVID-19. And what we we know in Ontario is that when we look at the data from mid-November to the beginning of December, COVID cases amongst the general population increased by about 22%. In the manufacturing sector, they increased by 77%, so far outpacing the the growth in cases amongst the general population. And we know that in Ontario, there have been at least 8,700 workers who got COVID-19 through work-related exposures, again, that we know of that have successfully registered workers' compensation claims for those illnesses. So in reality, the number could be much higher in one province alone. When you name a company and report that there's been an outbreak there, where are you getting that information from? Is that like government posted information? Um, do the companies disclose that information? How, how do you know that? It's been a real struggle, to be honest. We know some of the data through the Workers' Compensation Board because companies are legally required to register cases that might be work-related, and then it's the board's job to decide whether there is enough evidence to suggest that the illness was work-related. But health units have varied wildly in their approach to disclosing uh, workplace outbreaks. Sometimes I've found out through health units, but sometimes I've found out because workers shared internal communications within their own company with me and Various levels of government, you know, would refuse to confirm those numbers, even though they were obviously true because they were from the company's own accounting. So a lot of it does come down to workers, you know, risking their job really to come forward and share outbreak numbers with the media. I mean, just to clarify, you're, you're finding out about a lot of these companies through investigative journalism work, through whistleblowers and, and sources that you then become responsible for keeping them confidential so they don't lose their jobs. I know which classroom at my kid's school had a kid. I can look at a Toronto map that the city provides and I can see which neighborhood has how many cases. No one had to go and uh, risk their job or do any sleuthing. That information is publicly known for a reason. And there's an idea that we should know where outbreaks are happening. I mean, obviously, but that hasn't been the case with, with workplaces. 
No, um, there's been a real resistance to naming employers with significant outbreaks. The City of Toronto just announced that it will start naming employers with large outbreaks. The City of Hamilton has also been doing this, but they're the only ones. In the summer, we reported on an industrial bakery in Toronto, um, which think remains one of the largest outbreaks the city has seen, but we only found that out because of our reporting, not because it was ever confirmed or publicized by the health unit or the government. I did an investigative piece on Amazon warehouses across Canada in December, and um, I was able to confirm at least 25 cases in one warehouse alone through internal communication that I obtained. But Peel Health Unit would not confirm those numbers. Um, And then it was later reported by the National Post that, in fact, 400 Amazon workers in the GTA have tested positive for COVID. 400. And, and, And before the reporting from you and the National Post, did other workers at Amazon know that there was that scale of an outbreak at the workplace that they, the factories they went to every day? You know, when I spoke to workers and I, and I spoke to many across Canada, the confusion over the scale of the problem was a source of huge fear. Within their own warehouses, workers get text messages and emails from Amazon alerting them every time there is a COVID case. So workers would tell me, you know, we're getting a steady stream of text messages about our warehouse and COVID cases, but we don't know what department they are working in. We don't know what's happening in other warehouses. You know, we don't have cumulative figures on how many people total have gotten sick. I think that causes a lot of uncertainty and fear for for workers. And it also skews, I think, the public's risk perception. You know, we hear a lot about retail workers and grocery store workers rightly because they're they're absolutely on the front line and shouldering a huge amount of risk. But there are also workplaces that you know, are invisible to a lot of consumers, and we're not seeing the devastating toll that COVID is taking in those environments. Um, I am a telecommunications worker, and I work in Western Canada for a large telecommunications company. I was doing an install, and the customer did not want to mask up and didn't want to give me the space. He was rude about it, like, you're a coward. That wasn't his exact wording, but it was the implications. Like, I don't see why you're so scared, or you're really worried too much about this. Uh, I'm safe. Like, there's just this ignorance around it. And I fall into that category of people with comorbidities. And if I were to contract, it will probably be a rough go. You're asking us to come and endanger ourselves. The least you can do is take the bare minimum steps to protect us. How is this happening? I, I, I have in my brain when I hear about the you know majority of cases in, in long-term care, you know, I know that people live there. And before this, you know, those were hotbeds for transmission of the flu. It's it's easy for me to understand how long-term care can be very difficult places to stop the spread. Um, and then workers get it as well. I understand that, but then I think about workplaces and I think about the, the workplaces that uh, I've gone into since the pandemic when I go in to see a doctor or something and I have to fill out like a form, a questionnaire. It seems like there's this category of essential workers where there are safeguards in place. 
um, and because they know that they're in this special category, um, I, I guess I just took for granted that, that everybody is following a certain regimen. So it, when you think about people having symptoms and coming into work, and, you th- and, and then I hear that there are, you know, uh, one workplace with a thousand cases, I'm just wondering from your experience, like what are the ways in which this is getting transmitted in these workplaces? I think that it boils down in many cases to structural problems that have existed in low-wage settings for a really long time. So I'll use one example, which is this industrial bakery in Toronto where 184 workers tested positive for the virus. Now, in some ways, this employer was probably doing better than, than many others in the sense that it did provide protective gear. It did provide, um, you know, temperature checks. And we know that some employers aren't even doing that. But this employer did, and yet it had this massive outbreak. And when you look at the underlying working conditions, I think that is where the answer really lies because many of the workers were temp agency workers. Some were juggling multiple jobs because their wages were too low to survive on on one job alone. Many did not have access to paid sick days. And these are all structural problems because they are what our employment protections allow to exist. You know, in the past few years, we have um, rolled back access to paid sick leave in Ontario, across Canada. Only two provinces offer any kind of access to paid sick days. We are seeing uh, the rise of temp agency work um, in the GTA, but across Canada generally. And all of those things in the context of an infectious disease outbreak are risk factors. It seems like there's sort of two buckets of problem companies. Some are following the rules, and if I'm hearing you right, the rules are insufficient, and we need to look at the rules and the systems and the structures. But when a company is flagrantly not following the rules, what happens to them? Well, I think that's the huge question. We know through research that was done um, through the Institute for Work and Health that 50% of essential workers who are surveyed by researchers reported not having appropriate infection control measures at work during the pandemic. So we know this is a big problem. And then the question of, well, what happens then? During the SARS epidemic, the SARS commission uh, that investigated how the province failed its residents identified Ministry of Labor Enforcement as a crucial failing and a crucial piece of containing infectious diseases and essentially saying if you don't enforce workplace safety, workers and by extension the public will be at risk. I got data for the Ministry of Labor's enforcement efforts over the course of 2020 and I found that from March uh, until December the ministry fined just one employer. Um, they, they've conduct, conducted over 30,000 inspections but they've issued just one fine. Um, hold on, hold on. They looked at 30,000 companies, and I, I, was that random, or were they looking at companies where they had reason to believe something w- might be wrong? It's a mix. So what they, what they, their inspections both respond to specific complaints, um, and they also proactively target high-risk sectors. So, for example, they targeted the temp agency sector, they targeted the meatpacking sector, they targeted um, the agricultural sector because we know these are high-risk areas. So it's not that they weren't going into these workplaces, it's it's that 
there were no fines issued. They haven't, as I said, they issued one fine to an employer, and they have not initiated a single serious prosecution of anyone over workplace safety violations. And I think this was a huge cause uh, for concern from advocates who say, you know, yes, inspections are important, but so are the deterrent effects of a financial penalty. Well, the inspections don't seem to be important at all. They seem to be, I mean, either 29,999 of those companies were just fine and all of these outbreaks were happening somewhere else or the inspections were insufficient. Yes. Yes. But help me understand this. Obviously, there are a lot more abuses and and bad actors and companies that are uh, sources of outbreaks and are not doing enough. Why has only one faced any consequence? You know, there are, there are a lot of actors involved in an infectious disease outbreaks. You do have the Ministry of Health, you have the health units, and you have the Ministry of Labor. And during SARS, the Ministry of Labor was really sidelined in the way that policymakers approached that epidemic. And I think that um, health and safety experts who who saw that all unfold are saying the same thing is happening now. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. People can't hug each other when they can't hold hands. People are sending flowers. I read every message of every order. I'd like to think we're essential in helping people survive this. It means something to me to be a vessel for that message. And if you're sending flowers, know 
that the card messages get get read and we think about that when we're we're making the flowers sir i just feel like there's a there's a misconception that that a lot of this stems from um i think that maybe it starts with the term essential worker which has me thinking of you know doctors and nurses and paramedics and and yes um people who work in grocery stores uh people who are involved like society can't function without these essential workers and and then that creates a understandable balancing act for policymakers that they're going to be at a higher risk these essential workers we can't tell them to go from home they can't work from home uh, but we need them so we're going to we're going to accept that level of risk and balance it against the other concern which is to stop the spread of the virus but in practical application essential worker has come to cover a lot of other people. Like we could talk about the big box stores and people selling all manner of things. I mean, we heard from people, you know, in, uh, who go into people's homes to do telecom installations, hardware stores, florists. There's another tension, and that is the tension that the government has at the highest level of trying to prevent uh, an economic collapse. Yeah. Right? And, and, and they want the economy to keep thumping along. And maybe under the guise of maintaining essential work, they have kept industries moving that have become sources of the outbreak. And, and in terms of that balancing act, they have succeeded in keeping the economy moving along, but they have failed miserably at stopping the spread. That's a, an a absolute failure. The, the conflation of those two balancing acts has fueled the spread. Is, is that, does that make sense? Does that sound right to you? I'll tell you a little anecdote from, from this week. Toronto Public Health began releasing the names of employers who are seeing COVID outbreaks. And one of them um, was a well-known uh, skincare manufacturer. And so I contacted the Ministry of Health and said, why is this manufacturer still operating under lockdown? I was directed to the Ministry of Economic Development and Job Creation, who then sent me back to the Ministry of Health, and ultimately no one has answered my question. Um, and I think that speaks to the confusion, seemingly even within the government itself, around who this lockdown applies to and how do we define essential workplaces. And I think you're right that we have to recognize that, yes, there, there are economic considerations, but when things go wrong, it's workers who, who pay the price. And I would also just add that, you know, there's so many other pieces that need to be factored in. You know, for a lot of these workers, it's difficult for them to access employment insurance, especially if they're um, being hired through temp agencies or are precarious workers. And so for them, also not having a job and being told, you know, your workplace is shutting down could mean straight up not being able to put food on the table because we don't have an appropriately strong safety net to capture those precarious workers. There's a lot of blind spots we had where we didn't really care if people had to work two or three different jobs. What What's it to us if they've got to go and, and take public transit between three different workplaces? That problem is now shared by everyone because that makes them all that much more likely to spread. The fact that they can't take leave, they can't take a sick day, they become a threat to others. Basically, problems that we had just downloaded to really poorly paid and very vulnerable people are now biting us in the ass. Yeah, you know, despite 20, 2020 being 
shocking and horrible and distressing on so many levels. Um, None of this was a surprise. I mean, experts have been saying to the provincial government here in Ontario and across Canada that precarious work is a public health problem. And that when you have workers who can't take paid sick days or are juggling multiple jobs, um, that is a that is a health risk. Just think about it outside the context of COVID-19. You know, if you go into a fast food restaurant and your server is very ill with a infectious illness, but they can't miss a day of work because they won't get paid, you're probably going to get sick too. It just seems broken at every level. I mean, it, the, the policies are insufficient. The transparency is insufficient. The rules are insufficient. The punishments for breaking the rules are insufficient. But none of this can ever change without reporting. And the reporting, like, Sarah, I learned about the the shameful situation, the breakouts in long-term care, because of, like, two people. Uh, there, there were probably more. I learned about it through Aaron Durfell, uh, the Montreal Gazette. And through Nora Loretto, writer and researcher who was just doing an index of long-term care homes and the COVID outbreaks there. I learned about the workplace situation because of your work and the work of like, I don't know, like three or four of your colleagues who have been doing this. Hats off to you all. You you are ab- talking about essential work, but that does not seem like a great system, you know, like a dozen, a dozen people in, in journalism or research. Uh, that does not seem like a sufficient reporting mechanism for the public to know about this like absolutely critical information. Well, yeah, and I think that comes back to the idea that, you know, information is power and that's why we need transparency and a lot of our reporting has focused on what happens when you there isn't um, transparency around these outbreaks. You know, we all know that newsrooms are extremely stretched and 2020 has been... <laughs> no exception to that. Um, it's been a it's a, been a really tough year and now we're confronted with the biggest story of any of our lives and so much is at stake. So, you know, it's really important that people have access to information, whether it's not just through journalists. You know, you should be able to go onto your health unit website and, and see, you know, where the potential risk areas are, I think. Looking internally at the media, you know, we talk about how this pandemic is exposing how our priorities were out of whack in society in general. In our industry specifically, a labor reporter was something that every newspaper used to have at least one of. Are you like, how many labor reporters are left in Canada? How many people have your job? Well, um, I think in, well, I don't like to use the word mainstream, but the larger traditional um Type media organizations, um, I'm certainly one of a handful, maybe one of the only ones with an actual, you know, labor beat kind of job title. Um, no, lots of people have pivoted and, and are, 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 I, I absolutely understand that you want to make sure that there are lots of people get credit for lots of work that's being done. Like, I don't want to say anything exhaustive, but uh, I... I you know, I keep a pretty close eye on this and I wasn't aware of anyone else who had your full-time job. Yeah, I mean, prior to the pandemic, there hasn't been a lot of uptake or interest in this beat outside our newsroom. And I think the pandemic is really showing why, it, well, I'm, I'm biased because I, I think my beat is important, but I think the pandemic has has really reinforced that. So I do think it's been a blind spot um, for a lot of 
a lot of media organizations. But I do also think that a lot of young people now coming up like have an interest in this area because I think like our generation instinctively understands why precarious work is is an important topic because a lot of us are are living it. Yeah, I I think the labor beat is the hot new beat. Everything old is new again. I mean, you know, for years over course of decades, labor reporting got replaced with business reporting. But it, it seems like as labor changes, like to make the news relevant, if I were thinking about what would I invest in to try to like attract bigger and newer audiences and bring people to news who don't read news, talk about real life, talk about work. But there is a, a big general discussion that's going on it, 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 about labor and the nature of work. And it, it precedes COVID in that there was this talk about how you know, this this society being built on this kind of idea that there's a job for everybody and it's it's going to always work out to 40 hours a week, uh, you know, five days a week. And anybody who wants one can get one. And any job you get is uh, a rung of a ladder and you can work your way up that ladder. That whole construct that so much is, is built upon that we teach our kids was already falling apart. And talk about, well, what do we do when we have a society that is incredibly wealthy, but the lines between people, the divide between people, it's a class thing. And and I mean, when we talk about the line of whether or not you're working from home or, or you have to go somewhere, that generally falls along blue collar, white collar lines. Not completely, but what kind of life you have during this pandemic is largely determined by which side of that line you're on. And your safety and whether or not you might die from a horrible disease or pass it on to people that you love is largely determined on which side of that line. And for all of the talk at the beginning about hero pay, which is like kind of an insult, like, you know, to pay somebody minimum wage or less with migrant laborers and then top them up for for a month or two for with $2 more and call them a hero. It's so patronizing. We're all in it together. It's very clear that we are not. In, in in what what time you have to think about what all this means and where it's all going, what do you see happening? Because it feels to me like our understanding of each other and that dividing line and the impact that that dividing line has is, as we watch the crisis uh, and, the, and the political crisis in the United States, for example, it feels to me like that is a big narrative. That is That is the big story. Where do you see things going? And do you do you agree that that's basically how things are falling on, on either side of that line? Yeah, I mean, I think that the story of this pandemic has been a, a story of race and class. And what we've learned through the pandemic is that our conception of what it means to be blue collar is outdated. I think for a lot of people, being blue collar is, you know, working at an auto plant The reality is that those jobs in the past were a mostly male workforce. They were mostly unionized workforce, and it was the job for life. That built the backbone of our economy that created a middle class in our country. And I think that the new blue-collar jobs are our long-term care home workers, our PSWs, our our home care workers, who are mostly racialized, low-wage women who do not have a job for life, who are juggling multiple jobs to try and stay afloat. We're seeing the devastating public health implications of that reality. Um, So I, I think and hope that that is prompting some thinking about what the bare minimum standards should be in these jobs. You know, none of this is 
by accident. Like it, it used to be a really shitty job to work in any kind of industrial setting. And eventually workers organized and said, no, you know, we want a union, we want benefits, we want higher pay. We as a society decided that that was the right thing to do. And we need to, I think, reconsider our commitment to that decision and reevaluate whether we are um, making good on on what was once, I think, a, you know, sort of part of our social contract. Hi, I work as a union worker for the city of Edmonton. There's been a lot of talk with the city of Edmonton about safety and changes that are made. But like in my experience so far, it's all been kind of cosmetic. It took a while when the pandemic started for us to be able to convince them to let us have more trucks so we don't have to share vehicles. And we have like advice to just roll the windows down, which was super cool. But now like uh, it's kind of just settled in. And a lot of guys I work with, despite being union guys, are just like a standard conservative voter. And like I get along with them very well. We just don't talk politics. But like... So a lot of them get their information and any news they get are just straight from Facebook. Now, as like vaccines are rolling out, well, there's a lot of talk about uh, Bill Gates and microchips. And I don't think that they're joking entirely. Tons of people that I've seen just don't wear masks when they're riding in trucks together and people are choosing to ride in vehicles together without trucks. And I know all these people have families and like I'm able to protect myself and like keep myself in a safe way. And like my bosses totally facilitate that. And I think there's just like this weird, like that, that working people have kind of settled into this weird acceptance. I, I think the people I work with understand that like the pandemic is real. Like I think some of them maybe are like a little hesitant, but they, I think it's been going on for so long now that people are just just like kind of not even thinking about the danger or risk anymore because they've gone this far without contracting it. You know, that sentence, we as a society decided to to, to respond, um, it, it's doing a lot of work. Uh, and, and the story of how we decided that involves general worker strikes and, and people getting killed and kneecaps being broken and uh, violence on the streets. There was a power struggle and the protections were an outcome of that power struggle. And... I can't help but wonder if that's what's next. Well, you know, I think that in many ways it's already happening. Like I want to, there are many organizations, including unions, but also a much broader coalition of um, civil rights groups, of environmental groups, of um, immigrant networks that are are really doing a lot of that heavy lifting. And, you know, Black Lives Matter is deeply rooted in advocating for workers' rights and organizing um, low-wage workers. And so those protests and those demands are happening. It's a question of whether policymakers are going to listen. And how the companies respond. I mean, you did a, a whole podcast called Hustled about gig economy workers, about Fudora. That company they just left the country rather than have a union. Yeah, and again, I, but, you know, I would say with that, it, it again comes down to, you know, what are the terms and conditions of, of the playing field and policymakers set those terms and conditions. And if it wasn't such an uphill battle for workers to sort of organize in the, in the gig sector, I don't think we would have seen that response. 
My name is Dalen Cochran, and I work in quality assurance at Chapman's Ice Cream. It's it's taken some adjustment, but overall, it's been pretty good. We've got temperature screening before we even enter the building. We've got face shields that are provided for us, and we get brand new surgical mask every day. We've probably got it better than most places that are still open, and even some of my friends that work in in hospitals say they wish we that they had. Uh, the PPE that we have. Uh, yeah, and we, we came back and immediately um, everybody that wasn't in management was given a $2 hazard pay. And that continued right up until September when management decided to just make it permanent for all the employees, which was not something that they had to do and something that a lot of other stores hadn't done. And so, I mean, hats off to them. They understand that uh, the workforce is what really drives the company and they treat us well. It's so strange to me how much of politics feels like empty symbolism when you think of, say, Doug Ford's government. And I think the posture is that this is uh, of your choices. This is the working man's representative. This is the working man's politician. Ford got rid of paid sick days trying to grapple with with that contradiction and then the the impact of it like how do you see that playing out in people's understanding of a policy measure like that and the role that it plays in in these workplace outbreaks i think it actually comes back to the prominence of our civic conversations around work and and workplace standards those conversations haven't been particularly prominent for for quite some time. Part of that, I would say, is, you know, because of the the lack of media coverage, but also because of the the way, sort of ironically, the way that work has changed, where workers are so much more precarious and isolated and vulnerable, it's harder to organize them. I think that's a challenge for, for organizers who care about these issues to really make this a prominent part of our civic conversation and have it, you know, at the forefront of people's minds when they're going to the polls. And actually, I think, you know, the pandemic will will probably change that to a certain degree. That is your Canada land. If you like the show, you can get it ad free for five bucks a month very quickly by going to canadaland.com slash join or just by clicking on the link in the show notes. Email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. We are reporting stories and putting up podcasts all the time. You might miss one. Our newsletter keeps you up to date with all of our reporting. You can subscribe to it at canadaland.com. Our producers this week are Kasia Mihailovic and Rosalind Kufour. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to, 
And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.